Good morning, everyone. How are you doing, all right? Enjoying the cool weather now? Summer's over. <laughs> Autumn's definitely arrived. Still wearing a t-shirt, though. I'm fine. So, um, this is the last in our series uh, that we've been looking at over the summer. Uh, Letters to his bride. We've been going through Revelation 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, looking at uh, what Jesus had to say to seven churches in the Asia Minor region uh, of that time, uh, all those churches in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and we've been looking at um, uh, what, what John um, has, has had to say. So Jesus gave John this amazing vision and told him to, to write it down. In fact, uh, it's, he told him to, in Revelation 1, verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If I pronounce any of those wrongs, I, wrong, I apologize. Each letter had a similar format. So, there's an introduction from Jesus outlining some of his characteristics. There's an I know where you're at description, which leads into an assessment from Jesus as to where each church is at, which is a mix of well done, must do better, and keep going. And then instructions from Jesus as to what they should do next. At the end of each letter, there's a promise for those who are victorious and a constant encouragement to have their ears open to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. Today we're going to look at the last of those letters uh, and see what John wrote on the scroll to the last church called Laodicea. Laodicea. I've got to work that out. Anyway, not to worry. So, in your Bibles, if you have them, uh, if you turn to Revelation chapter 3, uh, we're looking at verses 14 to 21. It's on the screen as well. And we shall read this letter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired great wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for those, those challenging words, those, uh, those words which offer challenge, encouragement, hope as well. And Lord, I pray as we, as, we, as we sort of dig into this now, would you open our eyes, eyes and ears, why not? O open our ears, Holy Spirit, to what you have to say to us. Lord, may we be sensitive to your leading this morning. Uh, and may we, may we learn more about your wonderful truth and be changed as we go in your mighty name. Amen. Because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you 
out of my mouth. One thing Laodicea didn't have was a reliable water supply. It was located next to the river Lycus, but this wasn't much of a river. It tended to dry up in the, in the summer. To overcome this problem, they built an aqueduct to bring water from a few miles away. It's like an early water transfer scheme, which excited me because I work in water transfer schemes. That's what I do. It's an early example of that. It's thought that the city's water was sourced from the hot springs near the city of Heropolis. Heropolis. By the time the water reached Laodicea, though, its temperature had cooled and it became lukewarm. Lukewarm is not a particularly positive characteristic. It's a bit nothingy. The thing that is lukewarm might look good and it might look like it ought to, but in reality, it tends to disappoint. So, a couple of examples. Uh, it's, been, it's been a hot summer, I think, by and large. Those were 35 degree days were awful. So maybe you went for a walk in the summer, you drove your car to a park, uh, went for like a couple of hours to a cafe maybe, and uh, had a little wander around. Um, and it would get a bit hot, you're looking forward to getting back to your car where you just remembered you had a bottle of water in the car. So you get back to the car and open the door and you're gasping for a drink after that hard walk and you get the bottle of water and it's like really warm in your hand and you open it up and it's, you drink and it's horrible. Warm bottled water is pretty, it's gone beyond lukewarm to almost boiling temperature probably. But that, that sort of lukewarm water is just not pleasant. Alternatively, maybe it's a cold winter's night and you fancy a nice hot bath. You know, you, 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 you get your bubbles in there and uh, you, get some, you get some candles on the outside perhaps. It's not, I, I don't do this by the way, it's just Heather. <laughs> Baths are my thing, I'm, I'm a shower man, I've got to say. But when I, I, I occasionally have a, have a bath, you know when you get in and it's like it's that hot, warm temperature and you go, oh, that's a bit too hot. You sink into it and oh, it's so lovely. But on this occasion, the boiler's gone down. And, but you want a bath. So you, you, you turn the hot water on, you get some sort of warm, rubbishy water out. You know, I'll, I'll give it a go. You get some bubbles in there, you get some candles, try and get the atmosphere going. Uh, and you, you sort of, you, you go to get in, and you know that as you sink into the water, you get that cold shiver through your body. That lukewarm water, it's just, it's horrible. Tea, my final example. So a cup of tea, in my view, should be hot. Iced tea is weird, I don't get that at all. But what is the most awful thing in the world, in my view, is a cup of tea that's gone lukewarm. I made a cup of tea when I got to church this morning. Uh, and it's been sat underneath my chair. Um, who likes tea? Anyone like tea? Norman, can I ask your services, please? Now, I've not, I've not drunk from this at all, so this is, a, I say, fresh, fresh an hour and a half ago. Have a, have a drink and see what you think. <laughs> exactly the response I was looking for. <laughs> it's really not pleasant. In fact, it kind of makes you want to spit it out. Which is the warning Jesus gave to the Laodicean church. I will spit you out. Indeed, this is the only church where there is nothing for Jesus to commend. In complete contrast to the church we heard about last week in Philadelphia, where there is all praise and no, and no criticism, no challenge. For the church in Laodicea, there is no praise and all challenge. 
Why is there such a strong reaction from Jesus to this church? It's the only church of the seven where Jesus anticipates their response. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Verse 17. I do not need a thing. They think they've made it. They have wealth. They are in a city that has wealth. They want for nothing. They are the epitome of self-sufficiency. And they love that. They're proud of it. They actually do some stuff. They, they, they do things. I know your deeds, says Jesus. He recognises that they do stuff. They might even be good deeds. They might even be helping people out. But they've not understood that good deeds that come from a place of self-sufficiency, that, that are not reliant on Jesus for the end outcome, that aren't pointing to Jesus, are just that. They're just good deeds. They probably have no distinction with any other charitable works that might have been going on in the city at the time. They've been duped into thinking that they're doing a good thing which makes them a good person. Box ticking, brownie points, I've done my bit. They think they're doing okay. And Jesus' reaction to this, but you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful. They don't realise that they have no relationship with Jesus. Further on in verse 20, Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. I'm here, let me in. He's outside of their lives. He's outside of the church. He's not involved. They're doing church without Jesus. And that's why they are to be most pitied. That's why they are wretched. And why in reality, they are poor, blind, and naked. That's why Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out. I can't stomach you. David shared earlier, this is, this, is, this is the tough one in some ways. This is hard to hear. Jesus speaking to a church. It's worth saying what lukewarm isn't here. So I've got a wee temperature scale uh, on, the, on the thing. Um, so, cold, lukewarm, hot. So what it, what it isn't, it's not non-Christian, cold to someone who's you know, interested, maybe going on Alpha, you know, uh, and is becoming a Christian, showing interest, and then they're a Christian, they're hot. There's, it's, this, it's not that. And likewise, it isn't Christians who are on fire for God, who are hot, to Christians who are going through a tough time, you know, cooled off a bit, drifting perhaps, lukewarm, to non-Christians, cold. That's, it's, it's not a temperature scale. It's Christian, not a Christian, there's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. A lukewarm Christian is not a Christian. That's why Jesus says it's better to be cold than lukewarm. Those who are cold to God, those who don't know him, who don't believe in him, Jesus prefers this because there's, there's, there is room for the gospel to move. There's room for the Holy Spirit to stir hearts. People searching for hope, searching for meaning, will be open to the gospel. These really tough words from Jesus, they come from a, from a place of love. In verse 19, those whom I love, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. We've sung a lot this morning about God's love for us. On and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. Jesus has not abandoned this church with all those massive issues. 
He loves them. He's on their case. As Margaret said, he's chasing after them. He's warning them of the path they're on and where they're heading. He desperately wants them to change, to open the door to him, to let him in. He wants a relationship with them. So, to that end, Jesus urges them to do something, to buy from him. Laodicea was a rich city and was perhaps known for three main things. Its banking expertise, had lots of banks and money stuff going on, its clothing industry, and its medical school. They produced some sort of eye ointment, apparently. What Jesus does here is use what's familiar to the people in Laodicea, what they're proud of, what they became wealthy through, to make his point. This rich church in this rich city, you think you have it all? You don't. To get out of the state of being poor, blind, and naked, you need three things. Three things. Gold, so that you won't be poor. Clothes, so that you won't be naked. And salve, not salve, but <laughs> salve as in eye ointment, so you can see. Gold speaks of purity. Those things that make us impure, what we say, do, and think that are wrong are removed through the heat of the refining process. You know, gold goes through being heated and going, going through fire, and all the impurities get skimmed off. White clothes to wear. The stuff that we've done, said, and thought wrong, that exposes our guilt and shame. Things that hold on to us and we can't get free of. These are the things that Jesus came to deal with. Jesus was the perfect person, the one who did no wrong, to take on all of our wrong all of our guilt, all of our shame, when he died on the cross. One of my favourite verses in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is not just a sin dump on Jesus. Take all my sin, thanks very much. It's an exchange. It's the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness, his perfection. And the white clothes symbolize that perfection. And thirdly, salve, this eye ointment, to put on your eyes so you can see. See where you've gone wrong. See what Jesus did for you. See what an amazing life God wants to give you. The thing is, the Laodiceans can't afford it. They can't afford to buy their salvation. Of course they can't. Jesus, Jesus is trying to make them see that nothing that they have, nothing they could offer, the entire wealth of the city, the entire wealth of the Roman Empire, with the whole realm of nature theirs, it would be an offering far too small. Look at what God said to his people through an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, in Isaiah 55. It says this, Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Without money and without cost. The Laodiceans had their focus all wrong. They had acquired wealth 
worked really hard, invested their money in that which could not feed them, in that which does not satisfy. They got it seriously wrong. So what about us? What about us, All Nations Church? Here's the invitation. Jesus wants you. You don't need to bring anything. You don't need to prove yourself. You just need to come. And this invitation from God, it's for, it's for everyone. This is what I love about it. What Jesus offers is gold, white clothes, eye ointment. It's available to those who are lukewarm, who are cold, who are hot. So just looking at those, those three, three types of, of people. Lukewarm. We've said that. That means that Jesus is not in their lives. There is no relationship. Now, if Jesus was sat here talking to us at All Nations Church, like we've heard a few times in the series, and telling us what he thinks about us, I don't think he'd be saying that we're lukewarm. I don't think he'd be saying that we're a lukewarm church. Having said that, it's important to consider it for yourself. This, this is a warning. It's, it's, it's right there in Scripture. This is a church that thought they were doing okay. With individuals in it that thought they were doing okay. But it's really important to say this. This is not a warning for those who feel far from God, who feel like they're drifting, who feel like they've turned away from God and, and, and wonder what's going on. It's not a warning for someone going through a difficult time with their faith. Because people like that, and we've all been through, through times like that, you know you need God. You know that you need God. But the warning is there, and it's quite stark and quite frightening. If you say that you're a Christian, but you do not think that you need God, if you're happy living your own way, if you think you can do it all yourself, then please listen to this warning. Jesus is not an accessory to wear on a Sunday morning to look good in church or to keep up appearances. Jesus can't stomach lukewarmness. He won't. I don't think this applies to many in our church, but it might apply to some. For a long time, I was in a similar place. Before I came to this church, from my like, late teens to late 20s, I was aiming for self-sufficiency. That was my aim. I, I, I was trying to get to a place where I could control it, where I could get past my fear, guilt, shame, the stuff that was going on in me. I was trying to get to a point where I could find the answers that that would do for me. I thought I'd get by on my own. I thought I could do it on my own. I was aiming to get a place of, I'm there. I'm there. I'm in control. I've, I'm, I've, I've achieved where I want to get. I've got just enough of God to get by. I was looking like a Christian, going to church every week, going to group in midweek, did Alpha. But I wasn't. And it took, me, it took me a long time to get past it. It took me a long time to realize that I needed to let Jesus in. I needed to have a relationship, which I did in 2009. That tendency to self-sufficiency does remain in me. I, I, you know, my instinct is still to try and work things out on my own sometimes. I'm not a lukewarm Christian. I know I need Jesus. I know I need more of the Holy Spirit, big time. Don't we all? When I was in Bogota in the summer in Colombia, um, I was, I was, we were in, in one of the meetings in the conference, 
uh, just trying to receive from God. Really powerful time. Um, and I just got, I got slammed with a question, which I just convinced was from God, where he said, to, where the question was, why are you living alone? Why are you living alone? And it was like, gosh. You know, it's, um, and, and, and the challenge for me was my tendency to self-sufficiency, which I still have, it was a challenge to that. It was a challenge to, in your week, uh, you need to live in a more Holy Spirit conscious way as I go about my stuff, as I go about my work and my family life and whatever it is. Why are you living alone? So it's that the, the, the tendency is still there, but it's always, always things to work on. If, if, if lukewarm, you think might apply to you. If people look at you and think you're a Christian and inside you think, you know what, I don't need God. Talk to someone, please. At the end, we're going to have a bit of a response. Come and find the prayer team. Come and find me, Matt, Ian, Brian, someone. Have a chat. Let's pray through. Cold. Non-believers. People who don't believe in Jesus, as we said. If that's you this morning, you need to hear, as we've heard this morning. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. He's after you, which sounds quite scary, but it's not. He, he loves you so much, he, he, he offers you new life, he offers you righteousness, he offers you hope, riches beyond compare, clothing that will never wear out. He offers you a relationship, which is the most beautiful thing. That's what I totally, if, if, if you're not sure, if you've got questions, you've heard the Alpha pitch, come to Alpha, it'd be great to have you there to, to help you along. And hot, believers, those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, most of you here, you have received gold, you have received white clothes, you wear the white clothes of righteousness. And you can see, you can see God's given you the, the, the gift of seeing him for who he is. But know this, there is more to receive, there's more to receive from Jesus. He doesn't just give you a one-off gift at the point of salvation uh, and, and says, here you go, here's enough gold, clothing and ointment for the rest of your life, I'll see you in eternity. There's always more, there's always more. So I'm going to look quickly-ish, I'm going to miss that one actually, um, we'll have a quick look at these three gifts, but we're going to make, I'll make it two, we're going to miss our gold. Just for the sake of time, which I know, God's, God's good. Just, just to let you know, so, 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 so the first point around gold was, was perseverance uh, and time to trial. And the, the, the point I wanted to make there quickly was, as a church, if we're going God's way, we should expect time to trial. We should expect times of testing. Uh, five of the seven churches with the letters we're going through persecution of some, of some sort. Uh, and if, we shouldn't be surprised if we go through times of trial as a church. We should be surprised if we don't. So that's, that's the point I want to make there. Okay. Secondly, purity. White clothes. As well as speaking of the righteousness of Jesus to cover our sin, white clothes also speaks about purity, about holiness, becoming more like Jesus. We are all called to become more like Jesus. All of, our, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is covered by Jesus. It's dealt with. We get the righteousness of Christ. But white clothes can get dirty. I'm not sure if you've realized that when you go around every day. We, we make mistakes. We mess up. 
we do things wrong. And it's important to bring before God the things that we do wrong. It's important that we, we do that as soon as we can. Otherwise, the, the danger is that they, that they will numb us to God. They will get in the way of our relationship. Look at the church in Sardis a couple of weeks ago, where Jesus said that many had got their, their clothes dirty. The consistent call through many of these letters is to repent. For the church to repent. And we find it here again in the, in the letter to Laodicea. So to repent and to, and to deal with the things that we've done wrong is part of, part of purity, the call to holiness. There's also, there's also an aspect of, of your hunger, though, of your desire. I want to say to you, church, do not settle. Do not settle for where you are. Do not think that you've got enough or think, oh, enough for now, Lord. Don't settle for where you are. Let Jesus into every part of your life. We had a word a couple of weeks ago at the Pursuing God evening, uh, on, on the Sunday evening, uh, where uh, it was a word whereby um, sometimes we let Jesus into, into certain parts of our life and not others, and we keep certain doors closed. Um, now, most of us, when we have people around for dinner, perhaps, or people or friends over, we like to direct them into the rooms that are tidy, that are clean, uh, that, you know, that are look, looking pretty good, and we close the doors to the spare bedroom, to the cupboard under the stairs, to untidy rooms, because we want to portray, you know, that we're doing that we're a clean, tidy family. Jesus wants access to all areas. He just he wants access to every room in the house. For for all of you here who have a relationship with Jesus, he's in your house. Let him into every room, into into those dark, dusty rooms where it's messy. Because he wants to help you get rid of the junk. He wants to help clean up the mess. He wants to shine his light into those dark corners. Because if you don't do that, then, you, then you're limiting your relationship with God. You're limiting how effectively he can work in you. And that limits the impact of the church. That, that limits our impact as a family on Bedford, on, on the nation. Pursue purity. Pursue it. Hunger for holiness. We've heard so many times that for revival to happen, we must deal with any unconfessed sin. That's the thing of it, isn't it? Deal with any unconfessed sin and get rid of any doubtful habits, not even a hint. Don't get used to or accept the stuff that you do that, you know, oh, you know what, it doesn't really matter. Get rid of it, not even a hint. In the Hebridean revival of the 50s, two elder ladies were praying for revival and after a powerful encounter with God, they informed the minister of the local church to be ready for revival. The minister and the elders prayed at the same time uh, as the two ladies for two nights a week, praying for revival to come. After many weeks, nothing in particular seemed to be happening. And one night, an elder of the church opened his Bible, as Psalm 24. And he read, he read this out. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? who may stand in this holy place. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their saviour. Brethren, he said, it is just so much humbug to be waiting thus night after night, month after month, if we ourselves are not right with God. They nodded and he continued. I must ask myself, 
Is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? He lifted his head and emitted a strange cry. Then he fell to his knees and crumpled to the floor. The barn where they were praying was suddenly filled with the presence of God. It was a moment that would later be identified as the catalyst that let loose a power that shook the Hebrides. They poured their hearts out in repentance. They went after holiness, recognizing that the Holy Spirit wants to work in those who are pursuing purity, who are hungry for it. My question to you is, are we prepared to do the same? Vision. The eye ointment. I just want to say, simply, ask God to open your eyes. We believe that God is opening things up. We believe that he's moving in our church, in our town, in our, in our nation. As, as Heather encouraged us a couple of weeks ago, when she spoke on the church, the letter to the Sardis church, consider what's happened the last year, year and a half or so. Consider the teaching that you've heard, the prophetic words that have come. The, the impact on people's lives. And ask God to open your eyes as to, as to what that means and what that means for you. How you can play your part. As well as open your eyes, lift your eyes. Lift your eyes to God. I tell you, in, in Bogota, I had my eyes lifted to take my ceiling off expectation. It's, it's, it's hard to explain other than... Um, the Holy Spirit encountered me in a way that, that I hadn't experienced before, and that's fine, experience is great. But it wasn't just, gosh, there he is, wow. It was like, gosh, there he is, and by the way, there's more to come. There's more to come. There's always, always more to come. Lift your eyes. Lift your ceiling. That wine that was on offer in Isaiah, the wine and the milk, you know, come, with, come and buy wine and milk with no money. I want some of that. I want new wine. I want new wine in, in my new wineskin. I want new expectation levels. Some of you will know, or a lot of you will know that word to Richard from Bogota when he went first time, a year, year and a bit ago. The Lord says, if you know and understand the time you are living in and what you have received, your nation will explode into revival again. If you know and understand the time. Look at what's happening in the world around us. It's, it's feeling more crazy by the week. Ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for more of him to show us how we, we can respond. We're in turbulent times. We're in uncertain times. We're in hopeless times. We're in times when God is moving and will move by his Spirit. Okay, as we draw to a close, we're going to finish on a, on a note of victory. These victorious comments at the end of each letter to, to those who are victorious. These promises from Jesus. I'm going to skip over a couple of slides. Um, some are a bit obscure and some are really cool. Um, but the one at the end of this particular letter to Laodicea says this. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. The beautiful truth is that a relationship with Jesus equals victory. The victory that Jesus won on the cross, just as I was victorious, becomes our victory. We are victorious through what Jesus did. 
And this means that we are, on a, we are in the position of being seated alongside Jesus. Paul said to, the, said to the Ephesians, we've had several quotes from Ephesians this morning, and here's another one. God raises up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are alongside Jesus in relationship with him. And this is a place of authority. It's a place of authority where you are, where you sit with him. And to sign off this summer series and look to the year ahead, I want to do so as a church that's confident in our position. Confident that we have authority in Christ. Confident that no matter what comes our way, whatever trials come our way, and there will be some, we'll persevere and we'll come out stronger on the other side. Confident that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in us, purifying us, guiding us and lifting our eyes to him. Confident that we will see more and more evidence of revival, more salvations, more healings come next week, more advancement of God's kingdom on earth. Can I ask you to stand if you're able to, please? Church, are you confident of your position in Christ? I want, I want, I want a verbal response to say, are you confident in your position in Christ? Yes. Are you confident that God's at work in this church? The things, there's, there's been a lot in there to be fair and I probably should have trimmed it down and if anything has resonated this morning from lukewarm to going through trials to purity please, please get someone to talk to, come to the front and have a chat but what I want to focus on for the church as a whole is going after purity going after holiness from a place of victory. Purity and holiness always seem so, so up there, so out of range, so impossible. But actually, it is possible. Because it's not about us. It's about the one who died and rose again. To give us the victory. And it's from that place that you can pursue purity. It's from that place that you can become more holy.